18. In into cold water, besides, they say that the cold impairs the effect of the poison. In summertime the Indians may also improvise a net with the help of their blankets, and drag the river at suitable places, farther down on the Rio Fuerte. I once saw them make a large and serviceable net by fastening sixteen blankets together lengthwise with a double row of wooden pins. Along the upper edge of this net they made a hem three inches deep, and through this they pass eight vines securely joined together by means of the fibers of the maguey to do duty as ropes. The opposite edge of the net had a hem four inches deep and this was filled with sand to sink it as it was dragged in. The boys and girls were told to go ahead and splash all they could in the water to prevent the fish in the net from swimming out, and it was funny to see them dive heels overhead into the water over and over like porpoises, the girls as well as the boys, with their skirts on. The fishermen advanced slowly, as the net was heavy, when it was brought in toward the shore. The women, even those with babies on their backs, helped to drag it. As the two ends of the net reached the bank, the big fish were picked out and thrown landward, while the remainder were brought up with a dip net made of three blankets. Eighty good-sized suckers were secured, besides a large quantity of small fry. Chapter XXII Resumption of the journey southward Pinus Lumholt C.I. Cooking with snow terror-stricken Indians A gentlemanly highwayman and his shooting box The pernicious effect of civilization upon the Tarahumares A fine specimen of the tribe the last of the Tarahumares from this trip I returned to San Carlos, mainly over the highlands south of the Barranca, and shortly afterward was able to continue my journey toward the southwest. The cordons here, generally speaking, had a southerly direction, running parallel to each other, reaching at one place an elevation of 8.800 feet. I had a fine view of the entire central part of the Tarahumare country, seeing as far as Cerro Grande, at the northern end of the Llano of Guachalchic in which direction the country, as a matter of course, looked quite flat. Nearest to us were wild-looking arroyos and cordons, covered in the lower portions with oak trees, and higher up with pines. We were in the midst of vast pine forests, and even the country north of us looked like one uninterrupted forest of pines. The Tarahumares had names for six kinds of pines. One species, first met with near Tuduawaka, was new to science, though not a large tree. It is very ornate bowing to its slender, whip-like branches, and its hanging needles, from 8 to 10 inches long, it grows here and there in groups at high altitudes, on decomposed volcanic tuff, the needles are boiled by the Indians and the Mexicans, and the decoctyon used as a remedy for stomach troubles, it is not disagreeable to take, the taste resembling that of aniseed, the Tarahumares prefer the wood of this variety of pines for the making of their violins, I found this species as far south as the Sierra above Pueblo Nuevo, in the state of Durango. The vegetation of the Sierra Madre is incomparably stronger and more luxurious than that of the cold north. The pine trees in higher altitudes, for instance in Norway, appear miserably puny and almost stunted when compared with the giants of the south. Trees of 100 to 150 feet high and 10 to 15 feet in girth are frequent. We noticed some species of pines the needles of which were over a foot long. The region through which we were passing seemed uninhabited, and there were really but few Indians living here. The cordon nearest to the one on which we were standing was covered with snow, and we climbed without difficulty to a point 9.300 feet high. There was no water, but snow three inches deep in some places, yielding all the water we required, though it had a slight flavor of the pines. The Mexicans did not like it, and said they would not eat food cooked with snow but after I had shown them that the water obtained in this way was very good, they also took to it, 
On our arrival at some Indian ranches, the people screamed with terror, ran away and hid themselves. There was something so unusual about their fright, that the interpreter and I went out of our way to investigate the matter. I saw two children making their escape among the bushes as best they could, a boy leading a three-year-old girl all the time, never deserting her. We found the children and a young woman on top of the rock. After we had succeeded in allaying their fears, they answered our questions readily. It appeared that two men from this place had recently been hanged by some people from Sunigaprita, the ranch for which we were making. One of the victims had been revived, but the other had died. My Indian boy Patricia knew about the outrage, too. I had at the outset been warned against robbers south of Guachalchik, and advised never to sleep in houses a thing I rarely did. Anyway, for other reasons, one man especially, Teodoro Palma, had an insolvery reputation as a gentlemanly highwayman. In the desolate region where his residence lies, his father had maintained a band of valiant men, who made regular plundering expeditions, driving cattle away, etc. It was a common tale that travelers who had to pass his place were invited to come in but never came out again. The bodies of the victims, it was said, were buried at night in the cemetery of the Indian village of China too, a few miles distant. Times had changed since then and the son was more guarded in his operations, but still sufficiently active, in order to avoid a long detour to the east. I had chosen to follow the track which passes this place, though travelers generally give it a wide berth, besides, I thought best to take the bull by the horns. When I reached the robber's stronghold, I did not find Don Diodoro at home, though he was expected to return the next day. In the meantime the superintendent showed me around the house and sold me some necessary provisions. The house looked forbidding enough. A wall of adobe, 18 feet high, ran all around the establishment, shutting it in securely. It was provided with two small towers, which had loopholes for rifles. In the house was a small chapel, in which Don Diodoro and his father before him had frequently knelt to pray. The altar was decorated with the pictures of many saints and in the center was a painting of the Christ child, a crucifix, and an artificial apple. When the lord of the manor arrived the following day, I immediately went to see him. As I passed through the enclosure he was scolding the superintendent, but on perceiving me he stepped forward to receive me. This modern Fradiavola was about thirty years old, rather short of stature, but unusually well built. He wore an embroidered brown jacker and a blue waistcoat and around his neck was thrown a many-colored scarf. On one side of his sombrero was a scarlet rosette. Under it gleamed brown, piercing eyes. His hair was cut short. Altogether he was quite good-looking, except for a cruel, sensual expression of the features. His entire manner, erect carriage, and quick, decisive movements told me he was a man of violent temper and extreme determination. He led the way into a room and I handed him my letter of recommendation from the Mexican government, and explained what I was doing in the Sierra. After he had read the letter, he said that he was my friend. I told him that I had heard there were robbers in the vicinity, and in case I was molested I should apply to him for assistance, since he was a very influential man. Of course I knew as long as he did not rob us we were quite safe. I then photographed him and his house, and he evidently felt quite flattered. He accompanied me for a mile down the road, and then, taking me aside, handed me back the paltry sum I had paid for the provisions, saying he did not accept payment from his guests. This was rather embarrassing, but there was no way out of it, and I had to accept it. 
I afterward sent him a copy of his photograph to even out matters. The guide with whom Don Diodoro had provided me walked out to us a place where his master last year killed and robbed a man. He is a poor shot, he added, except at close range, and he generally travels at night. In 1895 Don Diodoro Palma himself was killed by the Indians. If half the rumors about him are true, he certainly deserved his fate. He never dared to go down to the lowlands, because he out so many dead. As the saying goes, a few years before my visit, an American had been killed and robbed in the vicinity, and his countrymen in Chihuahua offered a reward for the apprehension of the murderer, dead or alive. Don Diodoro knew that a certain friend of his had perpetrated the crime, and in order to secure the reward he invited him to his house and shot him down in cold blood. I arrived safely in Guadalupe y Calvo, a once flourishing place, but now quite dead, since the mines have ceased to be worked. There are large Mexican ranches southeast of the town, and whatever Tarahuares live here about our servants of the Mexicans and frequently intermarry with the Tepehuans. I thus traversed from north to south the country over which the Tarahuares once held sway. Today we find the stride, approximately, between Guadalupe y Calvo and Mosachic roughly speaking, between the 26th and 29th degrees northern latitude, civilization, as brought to the Tarahumir, is not fraught with benefits for him, it rudely shakes the columns of the temple of his religion, the Mexican Central Railroad crushes his sacred plants without thought of its anger, which is vented on the poor Tarahumir by sending him bad years and ill luck, while the Indians deny themselves the pleasure of smoking tobacco in the daytime for fear of offending the sun with the smoke. The white men's furnaces and engines belch forth black clouds of smoke day after day, keeping the people out of the sight of Taradios, and thus preventing him from guarding them. In the engine itself they see the devil with a long tongue and a big beard. Worse than that, the foot of civilization destroys his home, for the whites draw the boundary line of his country closer and closer. The better class of Mexicans keep to themselves, and seldom, if ever, bother about the Indians at their doors whose mode of living and way of thinking are so different from their own. The class of whites on the borderland of such civilization as the Tarahumir comes in contact with is not the kind that will or can improve him. Being ignorant and unscrupulous, the Indian civilized by them is a very unpleasant person to deal with. He has learned to cheat and to steal, and he no longer carries out his contracts and agreements. Having learned the value of money, his greed is awakened, and he begins to look out only for his own profit. The first white men with whom the Indian gets acquainted are the traders who speak his language, and whose sole aim is to enrich themselves at his expense and compel him to deal with them. If the Indian does not want to sell, the Languars loses his patience, throws a few dollars toward him, takes the ox, and goes off. Many will go still further, they force the native to borrow from them, whether he wants the money, the cloth, the mescal, or the use of the horse, or not. Many Indians would refuse Mescal, satisfied with their native stimulants, but see no other way of getting rid of the unwelcome and obtrusive white than by yielding to his demand. The agreement is made that he must return the so-called loan on a certain date, two or three months hence. The Indian, of course, having no almanac, easily makes a mistake in his calculation, and the date passes. The dealer has gained his point. He saddles his horse, looks up the Indian and makes a great to-do about all the trouble he is put to in collecting the debt, charging not only enormous interest for overtime, but adding exorbitant traveling expenses and fees, 
he succeeds by threats and intimidation in getting his damages adjusted in such a way that, in return for the paltry sum he lent the Indian, he now drives off two or three oxen. The Indians, being honorable in their dealings, do not at first contact with the whites suspect rascality, and many stories are told illustrating the ease with which they have been cheated. Once a Mexican bought a sheep from a native on credit, and, after killing it, paid for it with the head, the skin, and the entrails. Another man did still better. He paid for his sheep with the same valuables, and spoke so well that the Indian was content to remain in his debt as the final result of the transaction. On another occasion a native was induced to sell eleven oxen, almost his entire stock, to a Mexican. It was agreed that the latter should pay two cows for each ox, but not having any cows with him he left his horse and saddle as security. The Indian is still waiting for the cows. When I expressed my surprise at the ease with which he allowed himself to be swindled, he replied that the Mexican spoke so well, they are so delighted at hearing their language spoken by a white man, that they lose all precaution and are completely at the mercy of the wily whites, who profit by their weakness. Some tough languors is not ashamed to cheat at games until the Indian has lost everything he has. One poor wretch lost several oxen in one game of kins. Other sharpers borrow money from the natives and never pay back the loan, or else impose fines on the Indians under the pretext of being authorities. Some foist themselves upon the tar who wears at their feasts, which they disturb by getting drunk and violating women. Where the Indians are still masters of the situation they catch such an offender and take him before the Mexican authorities, insisting upon his paying for all the requirements for another feast, as he has spoiled the value of the one on which he intruded. In the central part of the country, near Norogachik, they may even kill such a transgressor. It is generally through mescal that the Indians become peons. When the Indian has once developed a taste for mescal, he will pay anything to get it. First his animals, then his land. When he has nothing more to sell, the whites still give him this brandy and make him work. And there he is. To work himself free is next to impossible, because his wages are not paid in money, but in provisions which barely suffice to keep him and his family alive. Indians are sometimes locked up overnight to force them to work. The children of such parents grow up as peons of the Mexicans, who deal out miserable wages to the descendants of the owners of the land on which the usurpers grow rich. Before the occupancy of the country by the new masters, the Tarahumers never knew what poverty was. No wonder that the Christian Tarahumers believe that hell is peopled so thickly with Mexicans that there is not room for all. Some have been crowded out, and have come to the Tarahumers to trouble them. The Indians in some districts have been cheated so much that they no longer believe anything the white men tell them, and they do not offer food any more to a white stranger if he is what they call deaf. In other words, unable to speak and understand their language and explain what he is about, they make very good servants when treated right, although they often want a change, but they will return to a good master. I once had a Tarahumer woman in my employer's cook. She was very industrious and in every way superior to any Mexican servant I ever had. When not busy with her kitchen work, she was mending her own or her to children's clothes. While very distrustful, she was good-tempered and honorable, and spoke Spanish fairly well, and her eyes indicated unusual intelligence. A white man had deserted her to marry a Mexican woman, and she grieved much, but in time she became reconciled to her fate though she declared she would never marry again, as all men were bad. The Tarahumers had made excellent soldiers in fighting for the government. In one of the civil wars, their leader, Jesus Larry, from Nanova, 
a purebred Tarahumir, distinguished himself, not only by bravery and determination, but also as a commander, in private life he was civil and popular, the majority speak their own language, and in the central and most mountainous part, the heart of the Tarahumir country, they are of pure breed, here the women object to unions with outsiders, and until very recently light-colored children were not liked. Mothers may even get annoyed their little ones and leave them in the Sunday that they may get dark. The consensus of opinion among the tribe is that half-castes turn out to be bad people and someday will be fighting at the drinking feasts. A few instances are known in which women have left their half-caste babies in the woods to perish, and such children are often given away to be adopted by the Mexicans in the border districts. However, the Indians have become much Mexicanized and intermarry freely with the whites. Be it said to the credit of those high in authority in Mexico, they do all in their power to protect the Indians, but the government is practically powerless to control the scattered population in the remote districts. Besides, the Indians most preyed upon by the sharpers cannot make themselves understood in the official language, and therefore consider it hopeless to approach the authorities, in accordance with the liberal constitution of Mexico. All natives are citizens, but the Indians do not know how to take advantage of their rights. Although sometimes large bodies have banded together and traveled down to Chihuahua to make their complaints, and have always been helped out for the time being, the efforts of the government to enlighten the Indians by establishing schools are baffled by the difficulty in finding honest and intelligent teachers with a knowledge of the Indian language, where the Indians have had little or nothing to do with the whites. They are obliging, law-abiding and trustworthy. Profit is no inducement to them, as they believe that their gods would be angry with them for charging an undue price. As a matter of fact, they sell corn all the year round, whether it be scarce or plentiful, at the same price. Though the Mexicans charge them very different prices, the almighty dollar has no debates among these Indians. They have no need of aught that money can buy, and are swayed by persuasion and kind and just treatment more than by gold. If they had a few coins, they place them in a jar and bury them in some remote cave, taking from the hoard only a little when they have to buy some necessity of life. Among the pagans in Pino Gordo I met the finest specimen of the Tarahumir tribe, a shaman, called Juan Ignacio, although he had never been as far as Guadalupe y Calvo, and only twice in his life to the Bori game, and had thus spent all his life in the mountains among his own people. He showed a courtesy and tact that would have graced a gentleman. He took splendid care not only of myself, but of my men and animals as well, giving us plenty to eat, sending his man to chop wood for us, etc. He was possessed of the nicest temper, and was truthful, a rare quality among Tarahumers, as well as square in his dealings. His uprightness and urbanity commanded respect even from the Languarzas, and they did not rob him as much as the other Indians of the district, consequently he was quite well to do, while living among the heathen of whom there are that some three thousand left, I had no fear of being robbed of any part of my outfit, the Indians themselves would not touch anything, and there were no strange Mexicans about, if they had come, the Tarahumers would have immediately warned me, everything was perfectly safe as long as I had an honest interpreter, the Tarahumer in his native condition is many times better off, morally, mentally, and economically, than his civilized brother, but the white man will not let him alone as long as he has anything worth taking away. Only those who by dear experience have learned to be cautious are able to maintain themselves independently, but such cases are becoming more and more rare. It is the same old story over again, in America, as in Africa, 
and Asia, and everywhere, the simple-minded native is made the victim of the progressive white, who, by fair means or foul, deprives him of his country, luckily, with all, the Tarahumar has not yet been wiped out of existence, his blood is fused into the working classes of Mexico, and he grows a Mexican, but it may take a century yet before they will all be made the servants of the whites and disappear like the Opitas, their assimilation may benefit Mexico, but one may well ask, is it just, must the weaker always be first crushed, before he can be assimilated by the new condition of things, future generations will not find any other record of the Tarahumars than what scientists of the present age can elicit from the lips of the people and from the study of their implements and customs. They stand out today as an interesting relic of a time long gone by, as a representative of one of the most important stages in the development of the human race, as one of those wonderful primitive tribes that were the founders and makers of the history of mankind. Chapter XXII Cerro de Minora the highest mountain in Chihuahua the northern Tepehuan's troubles cropping out of the camera sinister designs on Mexico attributed to the author Mazilofoot races among the Tepehuan's influence of the Mexicans upon the Tepehunis, and vice versa profitable liquor traffic medicine lodges Cucudri, the master of the woods myth of the Pleiades. On my return from an excursion southward from Guadalupe y Calvo as far as Mesa de San Rafael, I ascended on January 12, 1895. Cerro de Minora, probably the highest elevation in northern Mexico. I say probably, because I had no opportunity of measuring Cerro de Candelaria. Approached from the north it looked like a long-stretched mountain, covered with pines, and falling off abruptly toward the west. It is conspicuous in the songs and beliefs of the Tepehuan Indians. We made a camp about 1.000 feet below the top, among the pines, with snow lying all around us and in the night a flock of parrots flew screeching past the tents. I was surprised to find the temperature so mild, there was no ice on the water, not even at night. The aneroid showed the height of the top to be 10.266 feet 20.60 inches at a temperature of 40 degrees F at 5.15 p meters. I noticed more birds between our camping place and the top than I had ever seen before in pine forests. Blackbirds, the brown creepers surfia and red crossbills were seen on the very top. From Guadalupe y Calvo I continued my journey to the northwest in order to visit the Tepehuans, about 1500 of whom still exist here in the northernmost outpost of the tribe's former domain. Only 17 miles north of Guadalupe y Calvo was the Tepehuan village Navalgain in Tepehuan, Navalgari, where nopals novel grow. The Tepehuan region includes some fine agricultural land, there are fields there which have been planted for 40 and 50 years in succession, as for instance in Mesa de Milpilas, but here, too, the whites had appropriated a considerable portion of the country, though the Tepehuans are largely in possession of their land, because they are more valiant than the Tarahumares, and can only be deprived of their property through the agency of Mescal, for which they had an unfortunate weakness. The Tepehuans are less phlegmatic and more impressionable and impulsive than the Tarahumares. One woman laughed so much that she could not be photographed. They are noisy and active, and in the fields they work merrily, chatting and laughing. Even when peons of the Mexicans they are not so abject looking as the Tarahumares, but retain their proud and independent manners. They behave almost like men of the world in comparison with the unsophisticated Tarahumares. In the eyes of some of the Tepehuan women I noticed a fire as bright as in those of Italians. These Indians live in commodious log cabins with interlocked corners, the roofs are gabled and often supported by piles of wood, they are covered with shingles, 
over which are placed rows of stones to keep them in place. The doors are furnished with jams. The Tepewans call themselves Odami, the meaning of which I could not find out. By the Tarahumers they are called Celo, walking stick, insects phasmidi. In Mexican Spanish Campamoche, the Tepewan language is not melodious, being full of consonants, and hard like the people themselves. They still speak it among themselves, though there are but few who do not understand Spanish. The Mexicans frequently enter into marriage with them. So so the Agiukiji Rutuviani Miles. There is water i.e. Tesvino in the house, he is coming down to us. As to their religion they are far more reticent than the Tarahumers, and it is difficult to get information on this subject. One reason for this is that they are afraid of being laughed at by the Mexicans. They still keep up their dances and secret rites and their ceremonies, customs, and beliefs. Although in many points they resemble the Tarahumers, in others fundamental differences exist, such as the complex observances of rules in regard to puberty, none of which have been found among the Tarahumers. Ignorant Mexicans, who have but a faint idea as to who is president of their country, more than once have attributed land-grabbing intentions to my expedition. With my three or four Mexicans and Indians and a dozen pack mules, I have been credited with designs of conquering Mexico for the Americans. Even here in Mandel Game a Mexican settler felt uneasy about his holdings and stirred the Indians up, saying that if they allowed that man to photograph them, the devil would carry off all of them, and it would be better to kill him. I was to meet the people on a Sunday, and in the morning I received this discouraging letter written by a Mexican for the Indian gobernador or general, who to affirm or authenticate the letter, had put a cross, as his mark or signature, underneath his name, Pueblo de Nandel Game, January 29, 1893. Dear Mr. Picture Maker, do me the favor not to come to the Pueblo to photograph, which I know is your intention. I believe the best for you to do is to go first to the Bora Game, because, as far as this Pueblo is concerned, I do not give permission. Therefore, you will please decide not to pass this day in this Pueblo photographing, your obedient servant, Jose H. Arroyos, General, to Mr. Picture Maker, taking my Mexican attendant with me. I walked over to the place where some twenty Indians and several Mexicans had assembled. The scheming instigator of the trouble had brought his rifle with him, to give way to his words, but the Mexican judge was on my side, and after he had read my letters from the government, he made a speech in which he convinced the people that they must obey the authorities. The Tepewans soon saw the force of his argument, and the defeated agitator slunk away. The outcome of the dispute was that the Indians expressed their regret that there were not more of them present for me to photograph, if I desired. They would send for more of their tribe to come and pose before the camera. Around Mandel Game grows a plant called Mazillo, or Mazmillo. It is more slender than the ordinary corn plant and the ears are very small. It grows among the corn and has to be weeded out, as it injures the good plants. However, several Mexicans assured me that, when cultivated, the ears develop. After three years they grow considerably larger and may be used as food. A man in Cerro Prieto raises this kind only, others mix it with the ordinary corn. I was told that people from the hot country come to gather it, each taking away about one ama to mix with their seed corn. The combination is said to give splendid results in fertile soil. Can this possibly be the original wild plant from which the ordinary Indian corn has been cultivated? If the information I received about it in Mexquitic, state of Jalisco, is correct, then this question must be answered negatively, because my informant there stated that the plant is triennial, 
In that locality it is called maize to pajero, and it is cultivated as a substitute for the ordinary corn, or for use in making it all. The Waikal Indians also know it and raise it, they call it tats. For about a month I stopped at Mesa de Milpilas, which is a fertile high plateau. The country is now almost open, yet magnificent pines still remain, and Cerro de Muinora stands guard to the south. This is the stronghold of the northern Tepehuans. I then descended toward the west to the village of Sincolagas, and found the Tepehuans there purebred, although speaking Spanish. Ascending again to the Sierra over the mining camp of San Jose, I arrived in Baboragame Tepehuan, Vahulal, where there is a large fig tree. The Pueblo is finely situated on a lano one mile and a half in diameter, and surrounded by pretty hills. I took up my abode in a Tepehuan shanty in the neighborhood of the village. The owner asked for the rent in advance, and for the amount of 50 centavos Mr. Hartman and I secured the right of occupancy, without time limit. I stayed there from March 31st to April 30th. There are a couple of Mexican stores at Bobora Game, and the village is more Mexican than Indian. The Tepehuans live on their ranches, and come in only on festive occasions, to mingle with their neighbors. As the Mexicans are designated by the Indians in all parts of Mexico, I was told that native traveling merchants from southern Mexico, called Aztecs and Otomis, pass through Bobora Game every five years, to sell their goods. They bring articles of silk and wool, wooden spoons, needles and thread, and do nice embroidery work, and make or mend garments. The Tepehuans of the north had much the same games and sports as the Tepehuans, and at Easter time, foot races where were arranged as part of the general festivities of the season. 290 people assembled, among them a few Tarahuwares. There were several races, the runners being divided into different groups, men and women married and unmarried and children, as among the Tarahuwares, two parties opposed each other in each race, and the men ran with balls, the women with rings, the married women, although fat and heavy, made better time than the young girls, the runners who distinguished themselves most were the married men, ranging in age from 18 to 30 years, the best of whom made 13 circuits in 3 hours and 1 minute and a half, I measured the circuit, and found it to be 9.223 feet long, Therefore the total distance run was nearly 23 miles. The two men who came in first, one a Tepehuan, 